All right. Assignments that are coming up due. We have an exam. First exam on chapters 0 through 2 is going to be on Monday. Um, that will be the entire class period on Monday. As I told you before, I will not be here. Professor King will have the exam and will bring that, uh, bring that for you. Um, it is, you are allowed to use those summary sheets that I gave you at the beginning. I gave you the one for chapter zero. If you want to go on D2L and print out the ones for chapters one and two for the exam, you're allowed to use those. You're allowed to write other notes on those. You can't bring other papers or books or anything else to use. But anything you can write on those papers, you're allowed to, to bring. So you are allowed to use those, and I've let Professor King know that, so he knows that you're allowed to bring those sheets, but I've specifically told him, you know, no other papers, so don't write, don't write on another piece of paper and staple it to it. Write everything on that sheet. That way it limits, it's just limiting the amount that you can bring in. But you are allowed to bring in those sheets, uh, those three for chapters 0, 1, and 2. You are allowed to bring those in uh, for the exam. Other things coming up next week, we've got a few things coming up. The first of the photo of the day quizzes will be available starting on Monday. It's up there right now. It'll unlock on Monday and you can take that any time during the week. It's available for the whole week. That covers any picture from the start of class through today. So even though you're taking it on Monday, I've already put it up and it's done. I will not be adding the pictures from Saturday or Sunday or next week. will not be added onto it. I'll start with the second quiz. We'll pick up on September 6th and go on from there. So any picture from October 18th when class started through today could be on there. You'll get a random set of 12 questions of those and you'll get two uh, chances. You can take that two times. Uh, again, you'll get different questions each time, but you can take that twice. Your highest score is what is kept. The other things next week, um, the first of the article reviews is scheduled to be due next week. I have up on D2L, if you go into lesson four, which is telescopes, which we'll be starting on next week, there is a section there. It's got, like everything else, it's got the lecture slides, it's got a video, has a link for the quiz and the review summary questions. It also has information on the first article review. It has a couple of example reviews of what I considered really good reviews done by students in the past. Uh, students who have been kind enough to let me use those. And then a couple of, a number of articles that you can select. So if you want to find your own article, that's great. If you want one that's there, you can click on possible articles and I've got 18 of them there. So you can skim through and see if something catches your attention that you want to, want to read. So they're, they're all up on, these are all good articles and if you're doing something else and you want to email me, email me a link and I'll look at it first if you want me to, you know, let you know if it's a good article to do for the review. But there are 18 of them up there that you can use uh, for, for that. So those are up there and available. You can look at those anytime because that lesson is actually active that you can get into it right now. So the first article review will be due at the end of next week. Uh, quiz 2 covering chapters two and three will be next week. And then homework two, it's up on D2L, but I have copies here for you as well, will be due on the 15th. So we do a week from, a week from Monday. Homework one, I have, is the only thing I did not get graded. And I apologize for that, especially with an exam coming up. And that's material that's gonna be on there. So what you will find is if you go back to lesson one right now, as I think, 
or in an hour from now, I think I activated at 10 o'clock or something, 9 or 10, there is an answer key for that homework. So you can go up and look up the, you can go look what my correct answers were. So I'm not going to be able to get yours back to you in time because I'm not going to be able to grade them all while we're doing lab. But I will hopefully have grades up for you later today or this weekend. But I will have actually the answer key is up and let me see. If you go under content for lesson one, you should see as of 10 o'clock you'll be able to see the homework one answers. So they were due earlier so you can turn though you can uh, actually access those answers after class you'll be able to access those answers and be able to look at what they are use them to review for the for the exams and since I'm not going to be able to hand the other ones back to you in time so they, that will be up there and that will be active for you to look at if you have any trouble with it you know let me know as soon as possible so I can so I can tell you I can fix anything on there so that's sort of what's coming up for the next for the next week again I do not know my schedule I will let you know, I'll either email or post on Monday and let you know if there's any days I'm going to be missing. And I'll let you know who's going to be able, if someone's going to be able to cover for those days. Questions here? We're good. So exam, again, those summary sheets, anything else you want to write on them, but no extra sheets, no nothing else beyond that. Yes, sir? Uh, what, what did you want for the articles again? I'm sorry? Uh, how did you want us to do the articles again? Uh, the information sheet is in lesson one. If you want to go, I gave you one the first week, uh, but there is the article review assignment right here. I gave you this sheet, and if you missed it, there's another. If you missed or another, there's another copy of it there, which tells you exactly what the point breakdown is and what I'm looking for on each on each section. But you should have a copy a copy of that. And again, if you have questions on it, take a look at it and then let me let me know specifically. Typically, if you're writing a page, you're not writing enough. If you're writing 10 pages, you're doing a lot more into the assignment than you need to. Two to three pages is used, double space pages is usually sufficient to answer what I give you. I give you there. So if you're writing and you're done at a page and a half, relook at what I asked for because you're probably missing something. Okay? Alrighty. Well, picture of the day for today then. Um, looking out towards the constellation of Sagittarius. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of gas, a lot of dust out there. And that's because Sagittarius is actually home to the center of our galaxy. Not the constellation itself. The constellation is just a grouping of stars and it's just a specific, really a specific region on the sky. But out in that direction is the center of our galaxy. And that means we're looking through the densest part of our galaxy and we see lots more stars, lots more stars, gas, dust, nebulae, everything. We see a lot more of everything when we look out in that direction. Um, there's a couple nebula, nice one over here and another one towards the center that have been the subject of other pictures of the day. You know, individually this is just a much wider, wider scope. What we're seeing here is something that we'll see in a little bit when we do our lab today. You'll see the equipment, some of the equipment. I already came in early and got that set up so we'd be ready to go. Uh, this is all hydrogen gas glowing. When you take hydrogen gas and you heat it up and excite it, it will glow and it will glow, it's one of its primary colors that it glows is a specific red line. Now we looked at that last time, we looked at the spectra, right? We saw that hydrogen had a nice bright red line and it had some blue and some off in the blue and the violet. The red is one of the most prominent ones and when we look out at space we see the evidence of that line. If we could take a spectrum of this gas, 
we would see a lot of hydrogen. We would see that pattern of hydrogen lines that we uh, looked at last time. We would see that exact same pattern telling us that this is made up of a lot of hydrogen. We see a lot of this when we look towards the center of our galaxy. Again, because we're looking through the densest part of our own galaxy. So lots of gas, lots of dust there, lots of stars that are forming. And that's why all of this gas becomes illuminated. You can see some of the brighter areas right here towards the center of this nebula and another one over here. That's where new stars have just broken out, just emerged from the dust and gas that formed them. They're extremely hot stars. If you recall, hot stars emit lots of high energy, lots of ultraviolet radiation. And that is enough to strip the electrons off these atoms. Hydrogen atom has one proton and one electron orbiting around it. If you give it enough energy, you can rip that electron off. The hydrogen atom wants to recombine, so it does. And as it does, it will give off specific wavelengths, including this red one that we see here. Now that process we're going to go through and look at a little bit more today. That's actually the subject of today's lecture. So we really got a nice picture that kind of ties into a lot of what we're going to be talking about today and what we'll be doing actually in lab uh, this in about an hour. Questions? Yes, sir? Does it actually appear that color then or is it like a false color image? This would be actual, it would actually appear that color. Now if you were to look at this through a telescope, you would, your eye would not be sensitive enough to pick it up. Your eye would see a glow, a fuzzy patch. When you can take it, we take an exposure with a camera and expose it a lot longer. But that is, or there are some that they do in false color. This one, to the best of my knowledge, was actually a real, real color. The, the, that hydrogen will emit very specifically red light. Good. Anything else? Oops. Sorry. Yep. Alrighty. Well, let's go on and we will finish up chapter two for you. And that is right here. We were looking at this last time. And I'll just review this for a second because we're going to be looking at this uh, coming up here in a few minutes. Essentially, this is what you're going to be doing is I have little spectroscopes for you. Essentially, this is the mechanism that you're going to use to look at the spectra. It's got a little slit on one side like this. It doesn't have a prism inside. It actually has a little tiny piece of plastic. And that plastic has lines etched in it, very, very fine. Very, very fine lines. That behaves just like a prism. So instead of having a piece of glass in there, it's a lot cheaper to have a nice little piece of plastic. But it does the same thing. It splits the light up into its component colors. So if you take this and you go out and you point at the sky, don't point at the sun, but if you point you know, nearby, you'll actually get a continuous spectrum from the sun. You would be able to see that. If you look at the fluorescent lights here, you'd see an emission line spectrum. You'd see very specific lines telling us what gas is in those uh, tubes being excited. So this is what we looked at last time. This was Kirchhoff's laws. I'd given you them in text form. This is just looking at them uh, pictorially where you can get three different types of spectra. You have your sources. You have a hot bulb, which is your continuous source. If we look at a light bulb, I'm going to have you do that when we start lab. You're going to look at a light bulb through this. You'll see a continuous spectrum, all the colors of the rainbow. No breaks in it. For the lab, what we're going to do is we're going to have all these tubes that are set up around each table have different gases in them. 
So each one has a different gas in it. If you excite that gas, not with a light bulb, but by sending lots of electricity through it to excite it, it's going to glow and it's going to give off very specific colors depending on what is in it. So when we look at hydrogen, you're going to see one. You'll see one pattern of lines. When you look at helium, you'll see another one. And I'll let you know what all the others are, but you'll see different patterns, different patterns. So that's what you're going to see today. What I'm not doing is the absorption spectrum. That's a little bit harder to do in class. Uh, can be done, but it usually intends getting a, a very dense dust cloud of something to send your light through to be able to see the absorption lines. It's a lot harder to do that. So I'm not going to do that one specifically in class, although that is what we see from uh, most of the stars. So that's where we were finishing up last time. And then what we're going to get on to today is why does this happen? So what is, it, what is it about the atoms, what is it about those gas particles that causes this to happen? Yep, there we are. So because we get, have spectral lines, it tells us something about the atom. It tells us that there are very specific properties of an, of an atom to, in order to get that. Why do we get only these specific lines? When I look at hydrogen, I got a bright line in the red. And what? I got something off towards the greenish blue. And unfortunately, I didn't bring a blue, but we'll use this over here. And we had a couple other lines over there. We saw some kind of pattern like that. Why, do we, why does hydrogen not give us anything else in between? And the model of the atom that we use is the Bohr model. And what the Bohr model says is that an electron can orbit around a proton, but only at very specific distances. And that means that you might have it in one state. This electron orbits around here, orbits around the proton. It can orbit there or it can orbit here, but it can't orbit in between. It can't go in between. So you could have your proton here with a positive charge. You could have one level here for an electron. You could have one level here for an electron. But it cannot orbit in between. And that has to do with how subatomic particles work. It uh, goes into quantum mechanics, which we're not going to get into the details of. But it has very specific levels. It can be here, it can be here, it cannot be in between. So we sometimes like to think of an atom as a miniature solar system, but that's the big difference. It would be like the solar system, you could have something orbiting at Mercury's distance, or something orbiting at Venus's, or at the Earth's, but you couldn't put anything in between. You'd have to jump from one to the other. You'd have to jump from Earth's distance all the way into Venus. You couldn't travel that distance. You're not allowed to be in between there. And because that happens, that means that if an, if an atom is going to absorb energy, if ener light is going to come in and be absorbed by it, you can move this electron only a very specific amount. It can move just by the amount of whatever these energies are. So it, it can take the energy to go from here to here. That's a specific amount of energy. Corresponds to, say, one of these lines that we were looking at that we would then see. Anything a little bit more energy tries to go up there, that's not allowed. A little bit less energy, it doesn't have enough energy to get to that next level. 
So those are not allowed. We're only going to see the very specific lines that correspond to these energy levels. Now I've only drawn two here. There are actually tens and hundreds and thousands of them in each atom. The couple lower ones are usually the main ones, but there are actually, they keep going on and on and on. There's lots and lots of levels. So that's why we get things like hydrogen, we get all these different lines, depending on which levels we are jumping between. But it's because you only have very specific wavelengths that are only very specific orbits that are allowed. You can orbit here, you can orbit here, maybe. You can orbit way out here. But I can't go in between any of those. Anything else is not allowed. I cannot have an orbit in here, or in here, or in here. All of that is not allowed. Now this is a very overly simplified model. We don't want to go into the real, it gets much, much more complicated as you go into this. And this is actually for the hydrogen atom, which is the simplest. Uh, but the one thing I do want to show is that it's actually a little bit different. And let me bring up the next picture here is really the modern model does not have specific orbits. So the electron does not orbit around like a particle, like Earth orbits around the sun. It is actually is, has a cloud. And the electron orbits around and it has, it has some probability of being, it is always in this cloud, but it has some probability of being at different places. So it can be at slightly more or slightly less. Now this is greatly exaggerated. It's really, you know, the vast majority of the time the electron is extremely close to that orbit. But there's some variation to it. There's a little bit of variation in where it can move. And that actually allows us to see the lines because otherwise you would get one exact wavelength and that would be it. If it was a fraction of a nanometer to one side or a fraction of, you'd never be able to see it because it would not be that exact wavelength. Because the electron actually has this cloud and has a probability of being somewhere around, you actually get a line that's a little bit thicker that you can see. So you get a little bit thicker line, one that's actually visible because of this. So the electrons don't orbit exactly the way the planets do in a couple ways. First of all, they can only be in very specific orbits. If we wanted to, if we had the proper technology, we could build, go take stuff, put stuff together, build a new planet and put it on an orbit between the Earth and Venus. You know, there's no reason it can't orbit between there. You can't do that with an electron. No matter what I do, I cannot force an, ele an electron to orbit around the proton at this level. It has to be at this one, or this one, or this one. So a little bit, some similarities in how we look at it, but uh, some differences as well in that there's actually an electron cloud around, there's actually a cloud, a probability around them. And what that has to do with is that subatomic particles, you can't pin down exactly where they are. They might be here, but they might be here. There's some probability as to where they are. Same thing actually works for us, but it's such a, such a, on such a, a low probability that somebody is any place, that you are actually someplace else. You know, there's some tiny probability that you're standing out in the hall. It's infinitesimal. And it will never happen in the lifetime of the universe. It will never even get close to you know, being, that being the case. But there is some probability that that is, is the case. It's incredibly tiny. But when you look at small particles, subatomic particles, that probability actually becomes quite large. And it could be here. It could reasonably be in there. It could reasonably be out here a little ways around this. So there's sort of a range of 
locations it can have. So, yes, if you're all of a sudden standing out in the hall, you know, you know, quantum mechanics took took effect on you. But again, the probability of that is, you know, multiple ages of the universe before you're going to have to sit here. Sort of like the monkeys typing out Shakespeare, if you've ever heard that, you put the monkeys on the typewriters or on the keyboard and they just keep typing. Eventually, they would type out a book, right? Eventually, random randomness, eventually you'd start typing out words and things like that. But the probability is that they'd have to be going for, you know, multiple ages of the universe. So it's not something that's going to going to occur. So, little bit little bit of quantum mechanics there. All right, let's see how we get those spectral lines. Here's an emission nebula on the right. That's what we were just looking at in our photo of the day for today. It glows red because of hydrogen gas at a very specific wavelength. So how do we get that? Well, here we're looking at those orbits that I showed. And you have the hydrogen atom here. Normally the hydrogen is in its ground state. That's the lowest one, the closest one to the proton. That's where the electrons want to be. And that's where they're always going to be unless there's something acting on them, unless there's some energy applied. So what you might do is you have the electron here. This one, now we've sent send in some energy and we've been able to apply enough energy to this electron, just enough to get it up into an excited state. So we've excited that electron. Electrons don't like to be excited, so as soon as it gets up there, it jumps back down and gives off a photon of the exact same wavelength. So it absorbs a photon of that wavelength and it gives, it, gives out one of the exact same wavelength. Big deal then, right? It absorbed a photon, it gives it back out, does it, how does that change anything? Well, what it does is that photon is coming in from some direction. That electron has no idea where it came from. It just knows it all of a sudden got this kick of energy and it's going to send a photon back out. So it may absorb photons, could all be coming from some light source in this direction, and it's going to send them out in random directions. So it's going to send them out here, it's going to send them out this way, it might send them back to where they came from, it might send them straight on. That's completely random, it can send it out in any direction. And that's going to allow us to see the different spectra that we see because it's random. If it was sent it out in the same direction, if it just absorbed it and immediately gave it back out in the same direction, we'd never notice anything. You would not be able to notice most of what I'll be going through today. But because it's random, it sends it out in some other direction. If we're looking here from this direction, we're looking at this cloud of all these hydrogen atoms, billions upon billions of them doing this, that specific wavelength is going to disappear. It's going to be missing because it's been sent out in all different directions. So that's the simplest version. You can get what we call direct decay. The atom gets excited, electron jumps up an energy level, jumps right back down to where it was, and gives off a photon of the same wavelength. Now there's more that you can do, and that's what the other one, this one they call the cascade is. You have another, again, a high energy photon comes in, and this time, instead of exciting it up one, it was enough energy to excite it up exactly two levels. So it went from here, again, ground state, where it wants to be, up two levels. It still doesn't want to stay there. Doesn't want to be there, it's going to jump back down. But if we're jumping down two levels, there's two different ways we can do that. We can jump straight back down, skipping over this intermediate level, essentially what we did up here jump straight back down. So if this is an ultraviolet photon coming in, it's an ultraviolet photon coming out. 
You can also drop down in stages. You could drop down from here to here, giving a visible light photon. That's actually the red one that we see in these emission nebula. Is this, trans, is this jump right here between the second level or the second excited level and the first level, excited level. That actually is that visible red photon that we see. And then jump again from this one to this one, giving off two photons. So two photons, you take this energy and this energy, they add up to be what came in, so we didn't, uh, we conserved energy, we didn't lose, create, or destroy any energy. But we gave off a couple different photons. You can do multiple ones. There are multiple states here. You could have it cascading down five, six, seven times. So one photon going in could come out as six or seven different ones with the same total energy. So that's where all some of, the, all some of these different lines are coming from. As you jump down, you can see all sorts of different, of different lines. So we can get uh, great, uh, great numbers of lines. Certain of them are more likely to occur than other. There is, as with electrons, electrons and quantum mechanics, it's very much based on probabilities. So if you have hundreds of different levels, some of them may have a probability of 95% of occurring. Other ones might be one in a billion chance. So there's some of them that are going to be very, very rare. You're not going to see those very often. There's others that will occur very often, like this bright red one of hydrogen is one of the most common that we see. All right, so that's a little bit about how they form. Here is uh, making things, we've looked at hydrogen, things actually get a little more complicated. We have a helium atom here. Helium atom has two protons, two neutrons in the, in the nucleus instead of just a single proton, and has two electrons orbiting around it. Now, that means that helium can give you a couple different spectra. You can excite one of these electrons and it can jump through energy levels just like hydrogen did. You get a completely different pattern. If you recall when we looked at them last time, helium had a nice bright yellow line. You get to see that when you look at them today. Helium looked a little bit like this. Not perfectly, the, the, they were all slid off a little bit, but it also had a big bright yellow line in the middle that hydrogen did not have. Because those levels are different for every single atom. So helium will have a different set. Helium can also have a whole nother set. If we take this electron and rip it off completely, if there's enough energy around to completely tear that electron off, then you have helium with one electron. When you take off one of the electrons, it completely changes the energy levels and you get a different set of lines. So with hydrogen, that doesn't matter because if you take one electron off of hydrogen, there's nothing left. But I take one, off, one electron off of helium, I can get what we call ionized helium. Ionized just means we've taken an electron away. That gives us a completely different set of lines. So helium will have a set of lines, ionized helium will have a set of lines. If we look at something more complicated like carbon, carbon has six electrons. So you can get a standard carbon spectrum. When it has all six electrons and you excite one of them, you could rip off one of them and look at another, another spectrum of a carbon atom with just five electrons. You could rip two of them off. Have with four. So you can get all different. The more electrons it has, the more complicated it gets. When we look at some of these nebulae, 
And the spectrum of the sun, the very outer layers of the sun, the outer atmosphere of the sun where it's extremely hot and there's enough energy to rip off all these electrons, you can find things like iron that have had 10 or 12, half of its electrons removed. So it's not just that there are you know, 92 different naturally occurring elements. But each of those has multiple ones. You might get a couple different for helium and for carbon. You'll get several different ones depending on the amount of energy that is present. How many electrons you've been able to remove. So the multi-electron atoms give you a much more complicated spectra because you can get carbon with six electrons. You can get a different spectrum of carbon with five. Another spectrum of carbon with four. Another one with three. Another one with two. Another one with one. It takes a lot of energy to get to those as you're removing them. Those only occur where very, very high temperatures are found. So in the surface of the sun, we don't see those. Higher out in the sun, it gets up to many millions of degrees. And we actually can see uh, these atoms that have been ionized. We get a completely different spectrum. Alrighty. Even more complicated, these are both spectra of hydrogen here. The one on the bottom is what we're, we've been looking at. Right? There's that red line. There's one in the greenish blue and a whole bunch of the blue and violet. That's what we're used to seeing for hydrogen. That's for hydrogen atoms. Hydrogen also forms a molecule, which is just two hydrogen atoms bound together. If you look at the spectrum of hydrogen molecules, it's much more complicated. This is the simplest one, but instead of just these couple lines here, the way the hydrogen atom works, you can get almost anything out here in the blue. There is a gap in here where there aren't too many lines that are good, but there's a whole bunch of red and even some in the yellows and greens in hydrogen as a molecule. We don't need to know exactly what the pattern looks like, but the idea is that when you have molecules, if you have things like carbon dioxide, it's going to be a much more complicated spectrum than what we're used to seeing. So carbon dioxide, um, oxygen, molecular oxygen, carbon monoxide, another one we see out in, the, out in the universe in some of these nebulae. We do see some molecules. They get much more, com- much more complex spectra. And I think I have one of these. I have to look at them again. I think I gave you... Actually, I think you have one that has air in it. So it'll actually have molecules of hydrogen and nitrogen. So there's one of them that actually has you know, regular air in it to look at. So you get to see some with a molecule. And you should see that as being a little more complex than the regular ones that you've been, the other ones that you look at. Alrighty. Well, last section here is on the Doppler effect. Doppler effect is something you're familiar with maybe not by name but you've you know that you know you know the effect at least in terms of sound and all it is is a change in a in a wavelength because something's moving so you know this if you're standing on the street and a fire engine goes by right it's got this big high pitched siren that's coming towards you all of a sudden as it passes you the pitch changes goes from being real high to being real low and no, there's not a fireman in there flipping a switch as it comes by you to change the pitch. That's actually, that is what we call the Doppler effect. What happens is the sound waves are getting compressed as it comes towards you. So they're getting closer and closer together than they otherwise would be. 
giving it a higher pitch. The waves are hitting you faster and faster. As it leaves, it's getting stretched out and going, and they're further and further apart, and it's going to change that pitch to a much lower one. So you've heard the Doppler effect in that way. It works for sound. It works for water waves. Right? You can compress water waves as you go to as something moves as they move, if their source is moving, you can compress water waves in one direction, stretch them out in the other. We'll use it in terms of light waves. So light waves do the same thing. The wavelength of light will change if the source is moving. So if something is moving, the light, the light source, its wavelength will actually change. How much? Not very much. But significantly and very easily be able to measure in astronomical effects. We can measure how fast stars are moving from us by looking at this. If the stars are moving fast enough, there is, we, there is an equation, nice, nice yucky one down there, um, to be able to compare what they are, to be able to figure out what it is. And the, wavelength, and the equation is the apparent wavelength divided by the true wavelength. Apparent, that's where you observe it. So you take your spectrum, you have a scale there, you measure exactly where that line is. That's the apparent wavelength. That's where it appears to be. True wavelength, that's where it should be. Okay? If you're at rest in the laboratory and you measure the hydrogen, you get 656.3 nanometers. That's that hydrogen line. You, if you observe it at something else, then that difference, that's what you're looking at here. And that's equal to 1 plus your velocity divided by, in our case, it's the speed of light. The wave speed, you know, if you're doing sound waves, it would be the speed of sound. If you're doing water waves, it would be however fast they're moving. But for us, for everything we're doing here, you'll be looking at the speed of light, which is just some number that we know about 300,000 kilometers per second. We know how fast that is. So if you then measure the apparent wavelength, you know where it should be, you can then find the velocity. You can find out how fast this is moving because the speed of light is just a standard number that we know. So measure a wavelength and you can determine the velocity if it's shifted any way from, the, from where it should be. If it's exactly the same, if you measure your apparent wavelength to be exactly this, then you're going to get that the recessional velocity is going to be zero. It's not moving. Because if you get this to be exactly these are the same, then that's 1. 1 minus 1 is 0. The velocity is 0. So if you get it exactly the same, it's not anything different. Anything different than this number is going to give you some velocity. And that's how I can measure how fast a star, a star is going. And every star, every galaxy is moving relative to each other. And that's how we can make those measurements, is using this. So it puts it in frequency here too, which makes it a little bit more complicated, makes it look a little more complicated. This is just saying that the wavelength and frequency are related. This is really not a part of the equation. You could do it with frequencies as well. We're going to use wavelengths. So this, this little bit here you don't need to worry about. It's just what I've given you up on the board that this is equal to 
this. Don't worry about the frequency part, it's just another, another section there. So what it's going to do is it's going to make, if something is moving towards us, the wavelengths are going to look shorter. So that is a blue shift. If you're moving towards something, its wavelengths are all going to be shifted towards shorter wavelengths a little bit closer to the blue. Or if you're moving away, a red shift, you're moving towards a little bit, oops, moving away. A red shift, you're moving away. So you're moving away from something that's going to be shifted towards longer wavelengths. Longer wavelengths are towards the red end, red end of the spectrum. So a star that's moving towards us will have all of its lines shifted a little bit towards the blue. The stars won't move fast enough that it'll actually change the coloring of the star. We see red stars and blue stars. That has nothing to do with this. That has everything to do with their temperatures. The changes are very, very slight. You may be moving from 656, maybe 658, 659, uh, some little amount. Significant, measurable, but nothing that's really going to change, the, change this. At least not until we get to the very end of the class when we start talking about some of the most distant galaxies. There are ones that are shifted so far that they're moving so fast that things that should be out in the ultraviolet are in the visible. That's how fast they're moving. You know, they're moving at 90% the speed of light. Well, when you get very close to the speed of light, you get a very big shift. When you get this velocity coming very close to the speed of light, you get a very, very big shift. So it can occur, but for everything we're worrying about now with stars, anything in the solar system, stars, even the, even the nearby galaxies, we just see very, very small, very, very small shifts. All right, let me do a little, I think I got another one on here. Here's sort of an example of it. It really depends on the relative relative motion of the source and the observer. What that means is it doesn't matter who's doing the moving. So if you're in a car driving towards a fire engine that is stopped and you're driving towards it real fast, you're going to hear the same thing. You're moving towards it, you're going to hear a much higher pitch. As you go by it, you're going to hear a lower pitch. doesn't matter whether the fire engine's the thing doing the moving or you're doing the thing doing the moving. It's exactly the same. You're going to get exactly the same effect. It doesn't matter whether the Earth is moving towards the star or the star is moving towards the Earth. How can we tell? You know, we can't really tell the difference. It's exactly the same. It depends only on how they are moving relative to each other. So it doesn't necessarily tell you exactly how that star is moving. It's telling you a combination of how the Earth and the star are moving. However, if we look at lots of stars, all over the sky, we can then get a pretty good idea of exactly, we can statistically figure out where the Earth is moving, take out the Earth's motion, then we can determine how the Earth is really moving relative, the Earth and the Sun are moving, and then we can find out you know, how fast the stars are actually moving. So it's a multiple step process there. But it really depends only on the relative motion. It doesn't matter who's doing the moving. So top one is the sources at rest, and you've got two observers sitting here. If the source is at rest, you're going to get all, everybody's going to observe the right same wavelength. Nothing's moving here. 
So everybody's going to get exactly the same measurement. If that's that hydrogen line, both observers are going to measure 656.3 nanometers for the wavelength. However, if this source is moving, if it's here, and then here, and then here, and then here over time, the wavelengths on this side get squished together closer and closer. If we squish the wavelengths, we're making a shorter wavelength. So it's going to be shifted towards the blue. We're going to see a much smaller wavelength. And yes, if it's moving fast enough, it would actually be shifted into the blue part of the spectrum. Away. Now this source is moving away from this observer, so the opposite is going to happen. The waves are going to get stretched out further and further. So the wave that started here at 1, there's that big circle at 1. Here at 2, there's that one, 3, 4. They're all much further apart because the source is moving between each emission. That's going to give this a redshift. It's going to get much longer. It's going to observe a longer wavelength. So the blue shift, you're going to observe something a little bit smaller than this, 652 nanometers. Pick a number. For the redshift, you might observe 660 nanometers. Again, the amount just depends on how fast you're moving. The, the way it shifts, whether it shifts towards longer or shorter, tells you what direction. Whether something is apparently coming towards you or moving away. All right, let me finish these up here. Here's an example of it. It doesn't shift an individual line, it shifts everything. So here is that hydrogen spectrum that we're going to look at in a few minutes. That's at rest. If the object is moving away from you at some velocity, a couple hundred kilometers per second, every single one of those, you see exactly the same pattern, nothing changes. It's just all shifted towards the red part of the spectrum. And you see, it really doesn't change the color of the lines unless you get a really, really incredibly fast motion. They're all still going to appear red. This one is just a little bit further to this side. This one's just a little bit further to this side. Here's an object that's approaching at 600 kilometers per second. Again, everything is shifted. So the entire spectrum changes. It's all going to get shifted a little bit towards the red or a little bit towards the blue. All right, let's see. I think I had one more. Nope, that was the end. Let me just go through these summaries. That'll be a little bit of a review. We've got a couple minutes here before I set up, get the rest of the lab set up. Uh, we talked about waves and a bunch of the definitions of the different uh, parts, of, parts of a wave, the period, the wavelength, the amplitude. Uh, we talked a little bit, I didn't go into great detail, about how electromagnetic waves are created. Um, it's the accelerating charges. It's the alternating uh, electric and magnetic fields. The visible spectrum, that's what we see. That's what you're looking at right now. That's what your eyes are sensitive to. It's all different wavelengths of light, but it's only a part of the, tiny, of the tiny part of the electromagnetic spectrum, which includes things like radio waves. They're exactly like visible light. They just got real long wavelengths. X-rays, right? if you broke an arm, broke a leg, you got x-rayed, they're exactly like visible light, just much shorter wavelengths. But all their other properties are exactly the same. Infrared, ultraviolet, gamma rays, all different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. We can look at the temper, we can figure out the temperature of an object. We can figure out how hot things are out in space. I can't go stick a big thermometer in the sun, figure out how hot it is. But by looking at the radiation coming from it, I can measure, I can measure that, looking at the color. Um, of it, looking at what that, that black body spectrum is, where it peaks, tells us about the temperature. 
So we can learn about the temperature from the radiation coming from the star. Spectroscope is what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to split light, we're going to have light from all these different elements. We're going to split it into different components. And we'll be able to look at those spectrum. Uh, Kirchhoff's laws, essentially summarized here. A continuous spectrum is emitted by a solid, liquid, or dense gas. A hot gas gives you an emission spectrum. If you take a continuous spectrum and you have that incident or passing through a cool gas, a cooler gas, then we get an absorption spectrum. That's the big long one that took up the whole slide that we looked at for the sun. That's, what we, that's an absorption spectrum. That's the light from the sun coming through the atmosphere of the sun. And last one up here. Uh, we can explain them. We talked about the different model. We looked at the model today, the Bohr model. Uh, electrons have to occupy specific orbits. So they can only be in very specific places. And the emission and absorption lines depend on jumping between those orbitals. If you jump from a higher one, let me go here again. If we take an electron and we excite it, that's absorption. That would give us an absorption line. We're exciting the electron. We're sending it to a higher energy state. We're absorbing energy. If we go this way, this would be emission. That's emitting off energy. If the electron's going to go from this level to this level, it has to lose energy. It has to give off a particle of light with exactly that amount of energy. So that's how we get absorption. That's how we get emission. This is what we're going to be seeing today in the, in the lab. Finally, the Doppler effect, which we finished up with, um, it changes the frequency or changes the wavelength that we see, makes things a little bit further towards the blue if we're moving towards the object or it's moving towards us, uh, moves a little bit towards the red if it's moving away from us or we're moving away from it. And last one there said, really, it depends on the relative speed. So doesn't matter who's doing the moving. If I'm moving towards you, you're moving towards me, we're still going to see the same redshift. If I'm moving away, whatever the relative motion, we could both be moving, it'll take the combined uh, of that, a combined of that effect. So that finishes up chapter two. I'm not going to try to start on chapter three. We'll start on that on Wednesday after the exam, but this is the end of where the exam will be. That does mean with the homework. I would certainly recommend looking at 1 through 5 before the exam. You don't have to actually write them out. If you look at them and you feel comfortable, if there's questions on those, because that, that part will be part of the exam. So those questions. So look over the answers to question 1 that I gave, to homework 1 that I gave you. Take a look at 1 through 5. I mean, you don't, again, you don't have to write out your answers now, but at least look at them and make sure you feel, you feel comfortable with them because you will see some of that material on the exam on Monday. Questions? All right, well, I will finish getting things set up. I'll give you a take a break here and we'll finish getting things set up and get ready for the lab today.